thanks, thanks for your kind introduction. And it's a joy to be here. It's a delight to see what God is doing in Westchester. I'm just, I'm really delighted to be here. My understanding is I have about 70 minutes, is that correct? And we're going to talk about interpreting the Bible. Let me pray for us and, and then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, help me to faithfully speak about this subject to these people. And I pray we would all leave tonight uh, drawn closer to you, knowing you better, um, excited about studying your word and teaching others your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so uh, I have a daughter who runs track and cross country. And when I was younger, I ran track and cross country. And sometimes I will uh, attend her practice or come to the end of it, and I'll overhear the coach giving them some basic instruction. For example, the importance of dynamic stretching before you run. And I'll hear that and I'll think, I know that. Maybe that's why I keep injuring myself. <laughs> I should do that. And for many of you in here, I trust that our talk today will be a little bit like that. It's not that what I'm presenting to you is so radically new or different, but it's, it's the fundamentals. You're revisiting the fundamentals. For some of you, it may be uh, some, uh, some newer ideas. And what we're going to do, where, where is uh, Nate? I talked with Nate about this the other day. Yes, we are going to create a memory palace, okay? And uh, just like Sherlock Holmes. Uh, and the reason we're doing this is we want, when, when we leave here and you're driving the car, you're washing the dishes, I want you to be able to think back to what we did and be able to remember all the points. Rather than a week from now, you say, oh yeah, I have a piece of paper. I wrote down some stuff. I don't remember anything he said. I remember he talked about running at the beginning. That's it. We don't want you to do that. We want you to be able to recall what we've gone over. And, and so this is a memory technique that's been used from ancient times. And uh, so here's what, we're, what you do. You need to um, think of a structure, a physical structure that you're familiar with. So it could be your apartment. It could be a house that you know well. It could be this church, unless you're a visitor for the first time today, and then that would not be a good idea. You need a structure that you're familiar with, that you can walk through in your mind, right? And what we're going to do is you're going to take the structure you're familiar with and we're going to fill it with surprising images that remind us of seven essential things to do when we interpret the Bible. It's not that we do them, you know, always in succession, like number one and then number two and then number three. It's more like juggling all of them together, but they're all important things that we do when we interpret the Bible. Who has done a memory palace before? Has anyone ever done one? Okay. They actually work amazingly well. And even, even if you don't take anything away from, from the, the talk, if you learn this method, it's shocking what you can do with this. You can create a, a grocery list in your mind with a memory palace. You can create a sermon outline in your mind so you don't have to use notes. You can, you can use it for all kinds of things. But tonight we're, using, we're placing, um, and the more unusual the image that you place in, the more memorable it is, right? Uh, because you're like, what is that doing in that room in my house? And, and you'll, it will jar your memory. So uh, let's go in the first room, okay? The first room. And for me, the first room, it needs to be a structure you're familiar with. So you choose yours. But for me, I'm walking in the foyer of my house. And when I walk into the foyer of my house, there's a disco ball there. And usually there's not a disco ball there. And the disco ball is displaying praying hands all around or it's like circling, there's praying hands. Maybe, maybe there's an MC Hammer, you got to pray, 80s song going in the background. Maybe there's, maybe there's my grandmother, and she has this huge prayer tattoo, like praying hands tattoo on her, on her shoulder. I'm like, Grandma, I never knew that you had such big muscles. 
and that you had a praying hand. And, and yeah, it sounds a little bit maybe um, familiar, but how important it is to begin interpreting the Bible with prayer. And even though it's, it's you say, well, yeah, that sounds like a, like a Sunday school answer. We pray. It's not only a Sunday school answer. It's a church history answer. It's a Bible answer. Right? Martin Luther, when he wrote this amazing essay on how to be a theologian, how to be someone who thinks and speaks accurately about God, he said there are three steps. Oratio, meditatio, tentatio. Prayer, meditation, trials, and difficulties. And the, where did he get this? He got this from Psalm 119. So he said this is the method that God has given us in his word to approach his word. And if you, if you were to print out Psalm 119 and take a highlighter, you would be shocked that one-third of the verses of 176 verses are about prayer, calling out to God to, you know, we could look, I'm, we don't have time, we're going to skim through some of this, but let me just choose um, one of them. Okay, so here, Psalm 119, verses 17 through 20. Be good to your servant while I live, that I may obey your word. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law, O Lord. I am a stranger on the earth. Do not hide your commands from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your laws at all times. What I would challenge you to do is before you read the Bible for yourself and your devotions, before you prepare a Sunday school lesson, open Psalm 119 and just start, pray some of the verses God, teach me your word. Open my heart. Give me understanding. And just see, this is the fundamental step in approaching God's word. Why? We could speculate because we are often proud people who are distracted and looking at other things. We need God to focus our hearts and minds to hear what his word actually has to say. Not to use it to justify what we want to do, but to hear what the word actually says. I talked to someone this morning who's a CFO, and uh the, the, re, Psalm 119 is sort of like a spiritual audit for our soul. So when we, when we read it, you know, we say, uh, my soul is consumed with longing for your laws at all times. It's an audit. We say, God, my soul is not consumed with longing for your laws at all times, but I want it to be. You know, God, I, my soul, soul today has been consumed with many different things. What this person is saying, what this, thinking about this, about this financial matter, about this... But God, I want my soul to be consumed with longing for your law. God, I, and, and note, I want you to note that it's not that there's some kind of secret spiritual knowledge that's imparted just to you. It's, you, can't go to this, you can't go to your Sunday school class and be like, hey guys, uh, you're wrong because I prayed a lot longer than you did to understand this text, right? That's not, it's to open our eyes to see what is in the text so that we appeal to the text. We point, have a finger on the text. Look at what. God's word says here and how it challenges us. So even if today the only thing you take out of here is you're challenged afresh to humble yourself, not, oh, I've got to get my devotions in. Let me, you know, what do I have to read for today? Or I've got to get the sermon started. Or I've got to get the Sunday school lesson started. But to slow down and say, God, I need you to tune my mind and heart. Open my eyes that I might see wonderful things in your word. If we had more time, we're, we're going to have to smooth along, go along here rather quickly, but if we had more time, we could do a, more of a theology. You could see all these verses, pray, praying to God to give understanding. We could do a broader theology of prayer and talk about when we start to do that, you know, God, give me understanding, then sometimes God's Spirit will alert us and say, 
I want to help you understand my word, but first I want you to go repent to your spouse, <laughs> right? Because God's not in the habit of making, uh, he doesn't want to make us religious hypocrites. He's like, first I want you to do this. First I, want you, first I want you to go forgive that person that you have unforgiveness in your heart. Then I want to help you prepare your Sunday school lesson because he's, he's making us people who reflect who, is, who he is. So let's think about it. For your memory palace, right? I want you to think about this. You come in, and you're going to have to tell your neighbor this at the end, so pay attention. Right, build your memory palace. You come in. The first thing you see, right, you got the prayer disco ball going on. you got to pray, prayer tattoo, right? The first essential step in interpretation at the beginning and throughout is prayer. We go to the Lord and ask him, open our eyes that we might understand the scriptures. For me, then I go into the next room. This is my visual file cabinet. I go into the next room, and there's this... Um, atrocious wallpaper all over the wall, very, very bold and bright, uh, white and black, stark, and it has all these different sports. It has judo and basketball and horseback riding. And, and uh, the, the, cue, the, the idea here is to know the rules of the game. The, the point being, sports are very similar to genres of literature, okay? So in, if you go to Southern Seminary, you go out on the lawn and there's always um, usually international students playing soccer, right? So if I went out there and I was like, hey, I want to play soccer, they're so polite, they'd be like, come, Dr. Plummer, play soccer. So I'd go and I'd start picking up the ball and throwing it around. They'd be like, no, no, you can't touch the ball unless you're the goal, you know, unless you're guarding the goal here. You can't, you can't do that because there's different rules for different sports. And, and pieces of literature are like that, right? There's different, within the Bible, there are proverbs and there's poetry and there's narrative and... There's all these different kinds of literature. Actually, the Bible is one book, but it's really more like a library, right? It's more like 66 different books. It's a tiny library. And if we don't understand that there are different genres, different kinds of literature within the Bible, and that they have different rules the authors um, assume that we will follow when we interpret them, we will, we will misunderstand them. So let's, let's think about that in a little more detail. First off, let's think about genre in our own time and culture. So we're talking about now, not in the Bible, just so we can understand it. So if you happen to be in a library and you walk by a room and you hear someone say, once upon a time, that's all you hear. You immediately are going to think, well, they're telling a fairy tale. It's probably got unicorns and dragons in it. It's got some sort of, some sort of trial or difficulty that has to be overcome. Maybe it's teaching a moral lesson um, it's a happy ending, right? All, all, all we, we get all those genre cues from one little introduction. When I get home after this trip, I'll check the mail and see that my wife and daughters forgot to check it the whole time I was gone. <laughs> and they'll, maybe there'll be a letter. They'll misspell my name. It'll say, Mr. Plummer, you have just won $10 million. And I realize I, this is not a factual, this is not a bank statement. This is a, this is a marketing genre, right? This is trying to get me to buy magazines. It's not... It's not, uh, it's, not, it's not factual. And so, or, or my daughter, when I come, I'm like, how are, how are you, sweetie? She says, I have a ton of homework. I don't, I don't grab her backpack and set it on the scale and be like, that is not more than 13 pounds. You're lying again. Go unload the dishwasher and help your mother or something like that. We realize that's hyperbole. Right? That's, a, that's exaggeration for the purpose of emotional effect that's shared by both parties. They understand it's exaggeration. If you misunderstand genre within the Bible, it can have all kinds of problems, right? Just a sample of those. One of them, it can be 
an underhanded way of denying the truthfulness of the text. People can say, oh, well, this is myth. And so we realize myth is a genre label, and it's saying that it's not historically, factually accurate, right? And, and really, that's, I think, when it comes to Scripture, can be an underhanded way of denying the text. It can be a way of excusing <laughs> genre. On the other side, people can understand genre. They say, oh, I understand the idea of hyperbole. When Jesus said, if your right hand causes you to sin, you know, cut it off. He didn't mean to literally cut off your hand. It's go to the extremes to avoid sin. You know, we, we understand that. Then you can, people can begin to use uh, genre to excuse themselves from the demands of Scripture. So uh, when, for example, Matthew 5.42, it says, Give to the one who asks from you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Right? There's multiple problems that could happen with that verse. On one level, you, know, you have the parent who says, I'm a, you know, they misunderstand. They don't understand hyperbole. And so the, the child says, uh, your child says to you, Pastor Raymond, uh, Dad, I, I want to drink this Drano that I found underneath the, the, the bathroom sink. And you say, you can't drink that. And they say, but Pastor Raymond, Father, the Scripture says, give to the one who asks from you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. And you say, oh, dang, you got me there. Well, let's go to the hospital parking lot, and you drink it, and then I'll run you in, and they'll pump your stomach. But that way we can obey the Scripture. And as absurd as that sounds, I have gotten, I got a call from a guy once and he, he's, we were talking, and I was trying to explain hyperbole to him. I said, you know, like when the Scripture says, don't let anyone call you father, you know, in Matthew 23, because you have one father in heaven. I said, you know, obviously we let our children call us father. So I'm not using titles to build an ecclesiastical hierarchy and stuff. He goes, well, I've never let my children call me father because of that verse. I thought, wow, you got some expensive counseling later on. That's <laughs> what I thought. But that's... True, right? But people can also know hyperbole. They say, well, this doesn't mean you, give, you wouldn't give a suicidal person a gun. You wouldn't give a three-year-old Drano. And then there's someone who is in desperate need, and it inconveniences us. And we use our knowledge of hermeneutics to excuse ourselves from the, the radical demand that Jesus places on us in the Scripture. Soren Kierkegaard a Danish Christian philosopher said this. This is for all the seminary students and pastors out there. Christian scholarship is the human race's prodigious invention to defend itself against the New Testament, to ensure that one can continue to be a Christian without letting the New Testament come too close. It's a danger that we can use hermeneutics to comfort ourselves in our disobedience. More likely, for most of us tonight, the danger with hermeneutics, not understanding it, not understanding genre, is teaching erroneous or misleading things, right? Someone says, look here in the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit comes, everyone speaks in tongues. So, if you don't speak in tongues, you don't have the Holy Spirit, right? They take, they take something described in Scripture, and then they make it prescribed, something that's described in historical narrative, and say, well, this is demanded. I'll give you another example of this. Uh, of, of misusing genre. So my wife and I, when we first, uh, when we were thinking about, okay, we'd like to have children, we need to plan ahead, we're, we don't feel competent to have, we still don't feel competent to have children, even though the oldest one turned 20 today. <laughs> but uh, we, but this was back in the day, listen to tapes. So we had cassette tapes, and we're listening to someone who's a prominent teacher on raising children, and he said, you know, um, 
you need to make sure your kids are not sleeping in your bed, which you don't have to convince me too much of that. I'm like, that seems kind of obvious. But uh, he said, you know, this, there's, a, there's a spectrum on this out there. <laughs> people will let their kids sleep in their bed till they're like teenagers. And then there are other people like, in the crib day one. So he was more in the crib day one. But he wasn't just appealing for various reasons. He said, look in the scripture. It says, when Mary, Luke 2, when Mary gave birth to her firstborn son, she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger. No joke. So this was his scriptural proof, his scriptural proof that we should put our children in cribs. It seems absurd, doesn't it? And that's where, that's where you have to say, okay, wait, hold on. Now, Luke is historical narrative. It doesn't mean that everything that's reported is to be copied, right? And, and, and later on in Luke, when Jesus tells a parable about the guy who you know, wants to borrow bread at midnight, he's, he has the guy from inside say, don't bother me, the door's now shut, and my children are with me in bed, right? Luke, so Jesus makes the family bed. You know, all the kids are sleeping like meerkats together on the little roof of the house. Um, so we, but, but both of those are, well, the, I think in Jesus' parable, it's just this is the way family life typically was. It's not intended to be copied. But in, in the account of Jesus' birth, it is unusual to place a child in a feeding trough, right? Why is that detail given? And you have to step back from Luke and say, Luke really emphasizes the lowly nature of Jesus' origin and how he, he's there for outcasts and sinners. You say, this really fits with a theme that's repeated in Luke where Jesus comes for the outcast in the center. The Jesus, Jesus, the king of the universe is born. Smelly shepherds come to see him. He's placed in a feeding trough. His parents are of the, of the economic level. They offer the, the, the inexpensive offering at the temple afterwards. His, his humble origins are emphasized. So, um, again, the, I, over half the Bible is historical narrative. There's a real danger of thinking that Description equals prescription. We have, to, we have to look more carefully than that. Okay, so we're building this memory palace. And we come in the first room, and again we see the disco ball, the prayer hands, grandma's prayer tattoo, an MC hammer in the background. Right, we've got to pray, pray. Open, open my eyes, Lord, that I might see wonderful things in your word. We go to the next room, we see the stark wallpaper all around all these judo, horseback, there's different sports, there's different rules. Know the rules of the game. There are different genres in the Bible that have different assumptions about them. I mean, people misuse this all, you know, they, someone could, could attack someone who's, who's poor. They say, well, in the Bible it says, you know, lazy hands make a man poor, Proverbs. So, well, the Bible also says someone may, their crop may produce abundant cops, crops, their fields may produce abundant crops, but injustice sweeps it away, right? The Proverbs are situational, and it takes wisdom to know why this person is poor. Is it injustice or is it laziness? And, and if you don't understand the, how the genre of Proverbs work, that they're situational, then you can wrongly apply and hurt other people, uh, which is basically, if you read the book of Job, is what Job's comforters do. They apply a lot of the proverbial type expressions you the reason you're suffering clearly is you're wicked you know and and if you read the book that's not the case right so we have different genres and then in the same room this mental fouling cabinet for me i i i put it filled with sawdust and smells the more senses you use the better it smells like the kentucky state fair smells like animals right and in this room i put a bull rider a guy riding a bull which is not something i normally have in my living room 
right? So the more, the more surprising it is, the more you remember it. And for me, remember, oftentimes I'm teaching biblical interpretation to preachers, but it, the principles apply to, to all Christians, but especially to preachers. But for all of us, I say, listen, the Word of God is a powerful force, and your job is to hold on and go where it goes, <laughs> right? Because yeah, so we, the, the memorable thing, you stay on the bull, hold on to it. Say it to the preachers, I say, there's really only two options when you're in the bull ring preaching. You either stay on the bull, you're a bull rider, or you're a clown. And because, you know, if you've ever been to rodeo, you got the clowns out there trying to entertain and get the bull to come to them and they're dressed funny and they're waving around. There is one way to teach the scriptures that way, right? To either make it you entertaining and drawing people. And that can be done you know, on, on a Sunday school level, too. It's, it's, but the job is to stay on, stay on the word of God and take, uh, go wherever the word uh, takes you. Uh, so this is especially important to respect the uh, inspired authors of Scripture and what they're teaching. So 2 Timothy uh, 2.15, Paul wrote to Timothy, his protege. He said, Timothy, and this by, by implication, this applies to all of us Christians as we serve God and seek to read his word. It says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. So if you think about it in life, all of us in here really try to do our best at something, right? Maybe at our workplace, we may love golf, and we try to be awesome at golf, or basketball, or baking the perfect loaf of bread, or whatever it is. But the Scripture calls us to try to, to, to excellence, to do our best at studying God's Word and hearing what the inspired authors of Scripture have to teach us, and so that we, in the end, it's before God, right? Do your before God that we would be faithful, and that we would not be ashamed because we wouldn't be twisting or distorting His Word, but delivering it accurately. In Second Peter three fifteen through sixteen, Peter says, "Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom God gave him." He writes the same way in his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. So like in Peter's mind, there's basically two options. You teach faithfully what the apostle Paul wrote, or you distort that teaching and twist it and change it. And it can be so distorted and so twisted as to distort the gospel and teach people a false gospel, which leads to their destruction. It can go to that extreme, right? So it's, it's a reminder to us. We want to, we wanna, just repeating the scripture or just using the scripture doesn't mean we're teaching it rightly. William Shakespeare in The Merchant of Venice has this famous quote, the devil can cite scripture for his own purpose. And we certainly find that in the Bible when Jesus, uh, the temptations of Jesus uh, the devil is citing Psalm 91. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. He will give his angels orders concerning you. That's Psalm 91. So just quoting the Bible, just using the Bible, doesn't mean that we're using it rightly. doesn't mean that we're respecting the inspired author's purpose for that passage. So some terminology to think about meaning and interpretation. Uh, I'm drawing this from Robert Stein, who was a mentor of mine. So we'll give the example, and then we'll... Then we'll or we'll give the definitions, then we'll give some examples. So the meaning is the paradigm or principle that the author consciously willed to convey by the shareable symbols he or she used. So I know that sounds kind of technical. 
Just hang with me, okay? The author is seeking to convey something. But then there are all these implications. There are all these implications. Those are the sub-meanings of a text that legitimately fall within the paradigm or principle will by the author, whether he or she was aware of them or not. So let's give an illustration of what we mean. So Ephesians 5.18 says, Paul, Paul says, don't get drunk with wine. So we look at that and we say, okay, uh, don't get drunk with wine. So imagine that Paul goes to Ephesus a month or two later, and when he shows up, everyone's drunk. I didn't get my letter. I said, don't get drunk with wine. They said, we haven't been drinking. We haven't gotten drunk with wine since we got the letter. Now we only get drunk with beer. And, and would, would, would that be okay? Would Paul, would Paul be like, my bad. I should, have been more, I should have been more specific. Don't get drunk with wine or beer or any future alcoholic beverage that will be discovered. You know, bourbon and you know, vodka, who knows? So no, of course not, right? Because there's, there's a principle there, right? For, it's true. Paul's like, don't take fermented grape juice into your body such that you lose control of of your thoughts and your actions and you dishonor yourselves and others. But the implications of that are any substance that would come into your body that would cause you to lose control and dishonor yourselves and others is, is, is forbidden as well, right? There's clear implications from a, if you understand the original author's meaning, then the implications flow quite naturally from that. Um, now, as we'll go on, we'll realize that just... <laughs> It would not be a good sermon. It would not be a good Bible study lesson to just go through all the things that are forbidden by this. We shouldn't get drunk with wine. We shouldn't get drunk with beer. We shouldn't get drunk with this. We shouldn't get high with this, right? Because this is only part of it is understanding uh, understanding that dimension. But, But if you read the rest of the verse, don't get drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery, right? Because losing control of yourself, you do, can do wicked things. He says, but instead be filled with the Spirit. <laughs> so like we're going to see, oh wait, it's not, it, until, we get to the, until we get to the end point of where the canon's taking us, Christ coming and the giving of his Spirit and life in him, then we, we're not really fully dealing with the text. That's where the danger of juggling, right? We're talking about implicate, meaning and implications, but it's hard to speak about it uh, cut off from the other elements. And, and unless we're doing the, the whole flow, we're not really absorbing it. So stay with me till the end to, so we can get the Christ-centered nature of it because, because it's not just don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Now, if I were actually teaching this text, I think I would, I would talk about, because substance abuse is a huge thing, right? It really is. Um, the more opioid deaths, probably everyone in here knows someone who's died of an opioid addiction or someone who's addicted to opioids, right? It's, it's a horrible thing. And, and um, at the same time, um, I think by implication, now I realize I'm skating further, off, <laughs> skating further out on the ice here, right? But there, as humans, we really try to fill and satisfy our souls with all kinds of things other than God, right? So there's, sub, there's substance abuse, but there are people who are addicted to their work, too. You know, they're workaholics. There are people who are addicted to shopping. There are people who are addicted to food, right? There's all kinds of ways. Rather than being filled with the Spirit, there's all kinds of false idols. And so I think I would, I would kind of skate out, that, being honest with people. I'm like, Paul here is really talking about um, wine, right? But those of us in here who maybe there's some people think, well, I would never be tempted to be a drunk. That's never something I've been tempted to. But there are other things you're tempted to fill your soul with um, besides alcohol or drugs, right? 
Um, another example of playing out implications and meaning, okay? So Proverbs 11.1 1 says, The Lord abhors dishonest scales, but accurate weights are his delight. Now, first off, we know this is just a factual statement. You're like, oh, that's cool, check. But it's obviously intended to, to exhort us to do what God approves of and to not do what God disapproves of, even though it's just a factual statement. Now, uh, wrongly, someone could read this and think, yeah, I'm trying to lose some weight. I hate those dishonest scales when they add. That's, that's not what it's talking about, right? <laughs> that's not. In the ancient Near Eastern world, what were scales used for? They were used to, to weigh agricultural produce. They were used to weigh metals. So if you've ever, maybe probably not in Washington or in Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., places like this, but if you go overseas and you go to the market, you, you want to buy some mangoes, someone has a little scale, they put a five kilo thing here and they put the mangoes over here, you're like, okay, five kilo of mangoes is this much. But what if that little five kilo weight was actually just four and a half kilos? What if it's hollow in the middle? Then you, you think you bought five kilos, but you really got cheated. So this proverb is about cheating people. Um, and it says, the Lord hates it when you cheat people in business. And the Lord delights when you're honest with people in your business. Chances are very few people in here use scales. Maybe someone works at Whole Foods. Does anyone use scales in their work? Okay, I don't see. Okay, one, yeah, one person. Okay, so the rest of us are we like, well, that verse doesn't apply to me. Or do we realize there are all kinds of implications about honesty in business? Right? There are all kinds of implications. If you build decks... You don't, and you say you build them with treated lumber, you don't build them with untreated lumber. If you sell a car, you don't roll the odometer back or hide something that's wrong with the car. You know, there's all, if you, if you work at a restaurant, you don't get your friend to check you in 30 minutes early and 30 minutes late so that you're making more money dishonestly, right? It's dishonest. At the same time, when we read this, right, we realize that, that no one on the day of judgment can stand before God and said, I've been completely honest my life, and I, I welcome myself into your kingdom for my righteousness, right? We realize that's not, the scripture says all of us have, have failed uh, to live up to God's holy standard. And so at one level, this, this audits our life, and we think back about, well, when I sold that, and I, was I really, was I telling the full truth? Did I twist things, you know? Was, it audits our, our honesty. It audits, and, and it also calls us now as followers of Christ to be people of complete honesty and faithfulness, even if it hurts us in a business transaction. Okay, let's talk about where, uh, examples of where this was not done. Uh, we're we're not, not respecting the author's intent, okay? So remember, the goal here is Stay on the bull, right? The bull is an image of powerful, unpredictable force, and our goal is to just grab on and go where it goes, goes where the text goes. I'm reminded I once had a middle-aged lady student who told me, she was very forthright about her thoughts. She said, Dr. Plummer, that doesn't work for me at all. That image does not work for me. So this is my image. She emailed me this of a woman in labor, and it was like the woman's stomach was, you get from the back, from the viewpoint of her head, and you had all the medical gowns and stuff. She's like, focus on one thing. I was like, that's cool, but that doesn't work for me. So <laughs> if you want to make your image fit better for you to help you think about holding tightly to the biblical author's intent to come focus when you come to the text, say, what was Matthew trying to teach me through this paragraph, through including this, inspired by the Holy Spirit? What was Moses? Why did Moses include this 
narrative at this point in Genesis? That's the question we're asking. Here's an example of what not to do. This is from a religious state paper, Baptist state paper, I have in my office. And at the end, they have a devotional section. It says, memorize the scripture. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Which is a strange verse to memorize, if you know the book of Judges. Because if you come to the end, it's basically like, rather than obeying God, people did what they wanted to do. That's what this verse means. This is modern America. Everyone is doing what they see is right in their own eyes, rather than following God. But then we have the application of this. Pray this prayer. Lord, help me to realize other people have ideas and feelings too. That's not what the verse is about, right? It is good to have, it is very good to be concerned about other people's ideas and feelings. But this verse in the context is saying ancient Israel was corrupt and confused. <laughs> so there's, there's, a, there's a, a book that I haven't read, except the title. It says, The Right Doctrine from the Wrong Text. <laughs> That's kind of what we have here, right? Yeah, respect, but it's dangerous. We're not really respecting the Word of God when we do that, right? It's not really respecting. God's Word is powerful. It's like a fire, like a hammer that breaks a rock into pieces. And if we just use it, you know, we just sort of use it for what comes to our mind, we're not using it powerfully and effectively. All right, my final example here of how not to use, how not to use the scripture, how not respecting the author's intent empties the scripture of its power. This person got off the bull and ran around like a clown. Okay, so we're gonna. This is an example from children's literature. Who in here ever teaches children Sunday school? Right. It's so important. Right. So important to train kids up. I'm. Tr- I. I trust at your church with. With, with Raymond as your pastor, you probably have good Sunday school material, but there's a lot of bad Sunday school material for kids out there that just keeps them busy and just the ideas bounce, you know. At, at Sojourn, it took us a long time to, to land in a good place on this. So this is taken from a book here, a children's um, um, Bible book. And so it says, this is looking at the story of Joseph and his coat that his father, Jacob or Israel, gave him. It says, do you have a favorite sweater, jacket, or shirt that you like to wear? We know from this Bible verse, it's Genesis 37, 3, that Joseph had a favorite article of clothing to wear. It was his robe. Joseph loved his robe because his father made it for him. Whenever he wore the robe, he could imagine that it was his father giving him a hug. What colors do you see in Joseph's beautiful robe? So now we can go around. Mary sees red. You see what color do you see? What color do you see? We've got to keep these kids busy till snack time. Dang. Uh, yes. Yes, tell me about that color. All right, we continue. A boy's grandma wanted to make something special for him. She wanted it to remind him of how much she loved him. She decided to knit him a sweater. And when she gave the sweater to her grandson, she said, imagine that this warm sweater is me giving you a hug every time you wear it. The boy loved the sweater. It was his favorite thing to wear. Now let's go around the Sunday school and tell, tell about a special gift that you got and how that makes you feel. Right? And then when mom and dad come, how was Sunday school? I got to tell them about my train set that I got for Christmas. <laughs> then we have to ask, why in telling this story for us in Genesis, did the biblical author, why did Moses include the detail about Joseph getting the present of a special coat from his father? Was it, if we just read the narrative, was it so that we would pause and reflect Unthoughtful gifts that we had received, and we might be encouraged in our self-esteem to think about how someone loves us? Or was it 
to illustrate the gross dysfunction in Joseph's family. So that there was favoritism, there was gross favoritism, and then there was his brothers wanted to kill him, but instead they sold him into slavery, right? And, um, and yet, in spite of that, in spite of the wickedness done against him, God was mysteriously working so that he would bring about a deliverance for his people from famine and from certain death, such that at the end of Genesis, Joseph's able to say to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God worked for good. Now, there's an appropriate way to do this with young children, but young children are acutely aware of favoritism. If you do something for one kid and not another, they're on it. They understand favoritism. Is it encouraging and hopeful news to them that though life is not fair, your teachers will not be fair, in your work, your coworkers and your boss will often not be fair, in your family it will many times not be fair, but in spite of that, God is still sovereign, and he is st- it doesn't excuse the evil of other people in any way, but you can be encouraged that he's still working to bring about his good, his good purposes. He's not out of control. That's nourishing. That's like a meal of meat and potatoes versus giving people a pile of Twinkies and being like, eat up, right? Self-esteem reflections that are unrelated to the text is a pile of Twinkies that will not, in the end, nourish people. So we think about our visual filing system, right? We come in the initial room. What do you see there? Disco ball, prayer tattoo, prayer, right? Oh, Lord, open my eyes. Not just as a pro forma, I have to say this, but honestly, open my eyes that I might see wonderful things in your word. What do we see in the next room? Okay, all the wall, there's different sports, there's different genres. Know the rules of the game. Be aware of the different genres of scripture and that the authors had certain expectations for how they would be read. That we read them, we read them, submitting ourselves to the authorial, inspired authorial expectations of those genres. We don't, we don't suddenly make proverbs into promises. We don't grab out details out of the narrative and be like, you do this. You have to speak in tongues. You have to put your kids in a manger or something like that, right? That's not the way, that's not what they intended for us to do. It's not respecting the authorial use of that genre. You say, well, I'm not very familiar with genres. Any basic book on biblical interpretation Half of it will be about understanding different genres, poetry, proverbs, psalms, narrative, epistles, and how how to rightly understand them. There's so many out there. My book, you can flip through it in there. It does, but any any basic book will do that. Okay, so we we, we also, in that same room, we have the bull, right? We have the sawdust, the smell of the Kentucky State Farm, right? The the state fair there. And so we, uh, we, we realize we need to hold tightly to the author's intent, right? When, when I teach hermeneutics, I say, hey, you know, fill out this line. I, Matthew, have told you this story about the Canaanite woman because, like, why did I include this story? Like, and, we, and we have to defend it by looking at the text, not just, well, I don't know, it makes me, like, we want to we look at details in the text. Look at the end. Look what, what's emphasized here. Look at this theme that's prominent. Like, we want to be able to defend that. Uh, why, do we, why do we teach the text in that way? When I go to the next room, for me, it's the sunroom. It's the sunroom in my, in my room, in, my, in our house. And um, I, I, I put this, 
I don't put this painting, I put the things in this painting there. So it's rather striking because in the sunroom, I usually don't have Martin Luther preaching uh, or Jesus on the cross crucified <laughs> or a group of ancient people, <laughs> people from the Reformation time, listening. Okay, this is this, and the, the point here, the, the point that we're getting is to point to Christ. Okay, so when we interpret the Bible, we need to point to Christ. And, and the way this, this picture shows this, and again, I, I actually put the things in this picture in the room. You look at Martin Luther, and uh, let's see if I could put the cursor. I don't know if you're, no, you can't really see it when I hold it over. But he has one hand on the scripture, like his finger is on the text. And the other hand, he's pointing to Jesus. So that's really a wonderful picture of studying the Bible. When we study and teach the Bible, our finger is on the text. This is by Peter Cronach, if you were looking for it. This is a painting by a contemporary of Luther, Peter Cronach the Elder. Um, and so, wow, what a, great, what a great compliment to Luther that one of his contemporaries said, this is, this is how I picture who you are. One finger on the text, one finger pointing to Christ crucified. Um, meaning the finished work of Christ on behalf of the people. Uh, Pastor Raymond, it's also encouraging to me. I don't know if I can, without, without a laser pointer, I can point this out, but you'll notice all the people, their eyes, as we should, are directed not to Luther, but their eyes are directed to Christ, which is we want, it, we want people when we're teaching them to draw them into the Scripture, to be searching the Scriptures themselves, to be looking at Jesus. But then there's this lady about halfway up, She's staring off into nowhere, right? Let that encourage you and me that when we're preaching, there's still always, even if Jesus were crucified in front of them and Luther were preaching, they'd still be not paying attention. So some of you who are art history majors now are, are thinking, doesn't he really know probably her family? Yes, I do. Probably this is the wealthy family that paid for the portrait and her looking out as a way of saying, yes, we were the funders of this. It was a, a kind of a subtle way of... Of, of claiming probably was why she's looking out. It's one thing to say we need to point to Christ, but what do we mean by that, right? Okay, first off, let's justify it from the Scripture. In John 5.39, Jesus said to his contemporaries, you diligently study the Scriptures because you think by them you possess eternal life. These are the Scriptures that testify about me. In other words, is it possible to know a lot about the Bible but to miss the point, yes, right? It's possible, to know, it's possible to memorize the New Testament and miss the point. It's about knowing God through his son, Jesus, right? Um, we see when, when uh, Jesus gave a hermeneutics lesson after his resurrection, as he's walking along the Emmaus Road with the two disciples, says, um, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, talking about Jesus working through the Old Testament, he explained to them, to the disciples, what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. These are the scriptures that point to me. Now, uh, we were talking about this at the lunch today, some of us. And, and let's be honest, when it comes to interpreting the Bible Christocentrically, looking to Jesus, both in, in whether it's a Sunday school lesson or sermon, there can, be, there can be a spectrum of way that faithful, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving preachers do this. So I'm trying to, to navigate this, respecting that, talking about different ways that the Bible points to Jesus, because there's, there's all kinds of different ways that it does. First off, there are texts that are explicitly about Jesus, which is pretty much most of the New Testament, <laughs> right? If you think about it, the text is just, I mean, like the text we looked at this morning, where Matthew, if you're, if you're look, teaching or reading a text in the Gospels and you're not making it about Jesus, it's hard, you're missing the point. 
It needs in, <laughs> it's on the surface, texts that are explicitly, and much of the epistolary and other literature as well. But then there, and then there are, when we look in the Old Testament, there are texts explicitly predicting Jesus. Now, there are less of those, right? If we, if we actually audit the Old Testament, say, well, there's Isaiah 53, you know, he, here he'll be the suffering servant. You know, Micah 5, he'll be born in Bethlehem. But there, there, there are explicit texts that, like an arrow shot through history, boom, land and are fulfilled in Christ. But, but the majority of the Old Testament is not, are not texts that are explicitly about Jesus. Thirdly, the third bullet point there, there are texts showing our need for Jesus, and there are a lot of those. All right, there are a lot of those um, that show us our moral bankruptcy. One of my favorite verses in Scripture is Romans 3.20. No one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. One of the main purposes, one of the main purposes of God's moral law is a spiritual audit that leaves a ding, comes up bankrupt. It shows us we have spiritual bankruptcy. And so we need a righteousness outside of ourselves. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, a famous uh, Christian philosopher of an earlier generation, I guess he was mainly writing probably in the 40s and 50s in England, he was asked to write an editorial about what was wrong with the world. It'd be amazing, wouldn't it, if today the New York Times or Washington Post said, Pastor Raymond, write an editorial about what's wrong with the world. Uh, but this was a different day, and he, he did reply to the editor. He wrote a short letter. He said, Dear Sir, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. In other words, Chesterton was saying, ultimately, what's wrong with the world is me. Fundamentally, it's an internal sin problem that is manifested in many, many ways in society. Even the, even the organization of the Old Testament scriptures points us this way, doesn't it? Think about when God reveals himself. I mean, you go to Exodus 20, and you see, I mean, this manifestation of God where he, he comes down on Mount Sinai, Exodus 19. He gives the Ten Commandments, and then all these laws about the tabernacle and burnt offerings, and it's just amazing, the, the atonement, all this. And what's the first thing that happens after this powerful manifestation of God? The golden calf. They worship, Exodus 32, they worship this is human nature before the holy law of God apart from, apart from the saving work of, of Christ to change us. And then you say, well, maybe they need the priesthood. We talked about that this, this, this flip to Leviticus. Okay, now they're going to have a method to atone for sin. So they set up the priests, the burnt offerings, the grain offerings. They send them. They, then they have the um, ordination of the priesthood. What's the first thing that happens after the priests are ordained? They, they, they violate the rules that God has just given, and two of them are, are dramatically incinerated publicly. They're just burned to the crisp, Nadab and Abihu. So it's like, well, neither the law nor the priesthood leaves us as morally flawed people with any hope, right? We need, we need, we need a priest who really can intercede for us. We, we need law that's written on our hearts rather than external to us. We need, some, we need a righteousness outside of ourselves. So much of, much of the scripture, um, it, in any way that it presents a moral demand to us, is showing us our need for righteousness outside of ourselves. The next bullet point is a how, I call the how much more so in Jesus text. So this is what would be called technically typological 
interpretation. So the New Testament authors are constantly looking back and they're saying, oh yeah, they, they were kings. They, they're, looking at, they're looking at institutions and festivals and so on. So, yeah, there were kings, but even the best king, David, David, a man after God's own heart, was an adulterer and a murderer. But how much more so in Jesus do we have a real and lasting king who's fully righteous? Oh yeah, there were priests, but they had to offer sacrifices not only for the people, but for themselves constantly, and they were corrupt. But now we have a high priest who once for all offered himself and sat down at the right hand of the Father. There's no more sacrifices. Oh, yeah, there was a Passover lamb. They did the Passover to, showing how God passed over them. Now, John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not, not every year remembering how that happened, but once and for all. So all those things, the festivals, the, the institutions, the, the, the offices, the New Testament authors are constantly looking back and saying, This is how much more so is this now fulfilled in Jesus. And then finally, the finally bullet point, final bullet point, Whole Foods people will like, I titled this the organic retrospective, right? But my organic retrospective, I'm talking about it, it's growing out of the text and looking back. It's growing out of, the, and, and in other words, all of our ethics, why we do what we do, is because of what Jesus, because of who Jesus is and what he did, we can now do this. We should now do this. An example of this is when our kids were little, you know, we have three daughters. I'm sure this would be the same with sons, but I didn't have any sons. You know, they're constantly bickering with each other when they're little. You're like, don't say that to your sister. Be kind. But, but we can't just say, be kind, be kind. Don't say that. Be kind, right? But we, we drew from Ephesians 4.32, right? Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just because God and Christ has forgiven you, right? So we have to, the reason that I can forgive my sister for being so mean to me and saying that horrible thing is because in Christ, God has forgiven me, right? It has to flow has to flow out of what's already done. It can't just be do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. That's, that's an empty way to live. All right, so we got to keep moving. So again, thinking about you're going to have to tell your neighbors, pay attention, right? Your mental filing system. So first room, we got the disco ball prayer chat. You got to pray, right? If that's the only thing you take away tonight, it's okay. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to make prayer a regular part of my study before I read the Bible, before I study the Bible. Go to the next room, rules of the game, different genres of literature. We have to think carefully about the authorial assumptions with those literature. We need to hold tightly to the biblical author's intent. Go where the text takes us. We need to point to Christ. Right? We need to point to Jesus. So in the early days of the church that I, I'm involved in in Louisville, we, used, we don't do this anymore. We should. We used to have a sermon evaluation that we would, the leaders would fill out every Sunday. And one of the questions was, did this sermon make you treasure Jesus and his finished work more? Right, that's always that's a good question. We could ask that about our Sunday school lesson. When the kids left Sunday school today, did this lesson make them treasure Jesus and his finished work for them more? Okay, so the next room, I, I, go, I, go, out of, I go out of the sunroom into my, the back of my daughter's room that connects to that. And it's filled with people um, at sort of classroom desks studying fish in formaldehyde jars, okay? Which is a strange image, but that's why it's there, uh, to help us remember it. People studying fish in formaldehyde jars. And, and the, it reminds us to study the fish. And what do I mean by that? I mean to meditate on the scripture. You'll find out while we're using this image. But remember Luther said oratio, meditatio, tentatio, meditatio, meditation on the scriptures. How does this image teach meditation? This is, a, this is drawing from the image of a famous essay, Agassiz and the Fish. 
by a student. You can Google it and read it. It's been used by John Piper and Dan Fuller and others. And uh, Louis Agassiz was the founder of the Harvard Museum of Comparative Zoology. And according to this essay, it's been a while since I've read the original, so I hope my memory of it hasn't expanded. <laughs> you know, sometimes you, you think about, you haven't read it so much that you fill in. But I think, I think I'm being accurate in the way I'm summarizing here. So the student showed up to Agassiz's office, and he said, oh, I'm excited to study zoology. Agassiz's like, yeah, great, great. Here's a fish. He gives him the fish in the formaldehyde jar. He says, study this and note everything you can about this fish. So Agassiz's gone. Students like, yeah, I'm all into this. 30 minutes, an hour, two hours, three hours. Agassiz doesn't come back. The student takes lunch. Finally, Agassiz comes back. He says, oh, tell me what you observed. The student lists everything. He's impressed with himself. And Agassiz just looks disappointed. He's like, is that all? Study it more. This happened over several days. He just kept coming back half a day, be like, is that it? Is that it? The student took the fish out, diagram, like wrote it, drew it. And, and the point of the essay is the student says, I never learned the, until this point the power of continued careful observation. The things that I saw, I had never seen before. And others have used this as well to point out that's the way we're to be in the scriptures, to observe them over and over again. Right? God in his scriptures has given us a hot tub that we're to soak in. People want to skate on it. You know, they want to skate over the top of it. But instead, we're to soak in the scriptures. And one reason we're to do this, not just because it seems reasonable, it's a good idea, but the method that he's given us in Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is how we approach the scriptures. A third of the psalm is about meditating on the scriptures, singing them, speaking them, storing them up in our hearts, meditating on them. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Notice in in Eastern uh, meditation, we think of being empty, like when someone is in Eastern theology or Eastern um, sort of philosophy, they think of emptying themselves and being filled with nothing. Biblically, meditation is filling yourself with the word of God so that it drives out other thoughts, it drives out, but you're filled with the word of God. And biblical meditation is not just silent, but it's singing, speaking, delighting in. You know, it's all, it's focusing all your creative energies on taking in the word of God and letting it filter through your lives. So what that means for us very practically is like, if you meditate, if you memorize scripture, when you're washing the dishes, when you're waiting to pick up your kids at school, you're thinking about the text. It's filtering into your life. Maybe you're gifted with, with poetry or music. That you're, you're writing songs and poems. or you're draw, At the church that I was part of, there was a very talented artist. And when she would listen to the sermon, she would always draw this most amazing pictures, like Salvador Dali type picture that that was illustrated the meaning of the text, and she could explain it to you afterwards. She was using her creative abilities to, to focus her understanding on the text. We don't have time to look at the many texts. Uh, Martin Luther, you know, he, he, he says, do you want to be like a little green piece of fruit, or do you want to be a healthy piece of fruit that's juicy and ripe? The difference is meditating on the scripture, letting it soak into you. All right, so uh, we, we, again, we have to quickly walk through. We have prayer, different genres of Scripture, know the rules of the game, stay on the bull, point to Christ, meditate on the fish, study the fish, right? meditate on the Scripture. And then when I walk out in the hall, I go to the next room, wherever room it is for you. Uh, it's a little bit strange because uh, there's the Brady Bunch there, right? It's unusual to have the Brady Bunch in my home. 
Um, and especially in the hall, and they're all singing, here's a story of a lovely lady. Right? Maybe singing the Brady Bunch song. This is a reminder to us when we study the scriptures, and especially when we teach them to others, they speak to us and to others as sinners, right? The, the, the studying the Bible is not ultimately an academic exercise where we become, you know, theologians who are writing books for the church, but it's where, where we meet God and he meets us at our deepest need. And, and the Bible speaks to us as sinners. You say, why, why choose the Brady Bunch? Well, the Brady Bunch, if you look at them, they look, they look great. They're all put together, you know, it's a, there's a conflict is always resolved, everything looks, you know, they might have a little fight, but then it's happy at the end. Perfect family. I haven't read this book, but uh, the lady, girl who was Marsha Brady on the Brady Bunch, now, now a lady, Maureen McCormick has written a tell-all story. Here's the story, surviving Marsha Brady and finding my true voice. Some pretty, pretty traumatic things. I mean, sort of a Me Too, Marsha Brady experience, you know, with uh, abusive type things going on behind the set, uh, drug use, and uh, abusive relationships and other things. Mr. Brady looked like the perfect dad but lived a very different life um, in, in real life and uh, died, of, um, died of AIDS in California. So it's, the, to me, the, the Brady, Brady Bunch is sort of a picture of we come to church on Sunday morning, everyone looks okay, but we're all really deep, flawed sinners. And when we come to the scriptures, they speak to us as guilty, sinful, discouraged people. And we, we, we need to, we need to speak, allow them to speak to us at that level and, and teach them to other people. These really apply to you. These really deal with the deepest things you're dealing with in life. The scriptures uh, give us the answers to that. How do, we, how do we get to that place of seeing the scriptures speaking to us as sinners? One is to ponder the broken human condition of the Bible. The Bible is so honest about the flaws of God's people, right? Uh, as we mentioned this morning, a third of the psalms are lament psalms. I'm, I was reminded, I was looking over these notes right beforehand, I was reminded when my daughter was like six or seven, she was an early reader, and she said to me, she was up in her bunk bed, I can still see it, she was up in her bunk bed, and she, she, Sarah Beth said to me, Daddy, what will you give me if I read the whole Bible? She had a New Living Translation there. I said, baby, she obviously knew that I wanted her to read the Bible, I said, you read the whole Bible. I'll give you whatever you want. She said, really? Whatever I want? I said, whatever a six-year-old wants. <laughs> you know, what do you want? American Girl doll? I want $100. Whatever you want. I'll give you whatever you want. So she was motivated. She started reading through the Bible. You know, I wasn't really thinking about going about my day. And then not long, she comes. She goes, Daddy, Noah got drunk. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I was like, he did. I tried to explain. I was like, yeah, the Bible's honest about people's failures. And I start thinking, oh, crud. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I was like, I was like, we got the rape of Dinah coming up here. I was like, hang on, baby. Uh, let's, let's let you skip over uh, a few sections to help you get through this quickly. All right. Um, but, but the Bible is honest about the brokenness of the human condition. Secondly, to be honest about our, about our own broken condition and those around us, to, to really be real, which invites other people to be real. We talked about that this afternoon with the, with the lunch group, but one illustration of that I think I'll just give is a, Alistair Begg, who was preaching in the chapel at Southern Seminary once, who's preaching about owning our failures and moving beyond them, and he told the story of coming flying down there. He said, yeah, when I was coming down here, I had my luggage, and the 
the person at the door of the plane. They said, you can't, that's too big. You can't put that on the plane. So I was really grouchy about it and complained. And, you know, I wasn't, I was really rude to the person. And I sat down and they came around and they're pouring, pouring my, my drink. The, the steward was the flight attendant. And he just leaned down and quietly said, the one he'd been so rude to, said, I like listening to you on the radio. So it's, yeah, we're honest about, wow, we really messed up there. You know, it invites other people to be honest, invites us to experience the grace of God, forgiveness of God, the strength of God um, in that. I could give other examples of that, but I won't. Um, So because of time, we, we have one last image that we're filing away in our mental filing system. So we have prayer, pray, we have different genres, we have Hold tightly to the biblical author's intent. Stay on the bull. Point to Christ. Study the fish. Meditate. The Brady Bunch. Here, you know, this Bible speaks to us as as sinners and guilt and suffering and um, need. And then finally, <laughs> at this point, for me, I can just fly out my house or wherever I am. And there, you'll see why in a moment. There I am in the middle of the seminary lawn. Why? This is where I teach. And you can't tell really because without if we turn down the lights, you can't really see it really clear, clearly here. But there are these two brown stripes that run through the center of the lawn when, when it gets warm. You're like, what in the world? Why are there two brown stripes running down the center of the, gla- gla- uh, the grass lawn? Well, because in the 1950s, there used to be two paths there. And it's so easy not... To, it's so easy to default to our old patterns. Like we come in here, we're like, yeah, I should pray before I start studying. That's true. I, I'm convinced. He convinced me. All those verses from Psalm 119. Or I should meditate. But then light the, under the heat of life and busyness, we just end up doing what we did before. Right? So there's a, there's a danger and a warning there of defaulting to old patterns. And I would say one way that we can protect ourselves from that is tonight. Uh, when you, if there's somebody here that you know, say, hey, um, I was convinced tonight that this is something I want to add to my study of Scripture. So you put a reminder on your phone and ask me about it in a week. And I'll ask you about something that we like to have some measure of accountability uh, where we can grow and together as a community and not just not find that 20 years from now we're reading and studying the Bible the exact same way that we did 20 years ago. Um, all right, so I'm going to answer any questions that you have. But before we do that, you, we're going to review it, and then you're going to turn to your neighbor, and you're going to go through your mental filing system. So we'll review it first, okay? So we come to the first room, and what do you see? Prayer. We go to the next room, what do you see? Right? Know the rules of the game, all the different genres of Scripture. What else is in that room? Well, tightly to the, right, to the bull. Stay on the bull, right? Then we, what do we see next? Point to Christ. I put Luther there, point to Christ. What do we see next? Study the fish. Then speaks God's, the scriptures speak to sinners, the Brady Bunch. And then we're out on the seminary lawn. Don't default to old patterns. Don't just, don't just keep doing the same thing and letting it come back. All right, so turn to your neighbor, and without looking at any notes, each one of you go through the seven things and see if you can remember them. And, and, 
complimentary what? No, I, I don't know if I don't want to, am I off? I can't tell. Hello. They, man, they, they've been, for years now, fertilizer, they've been trying to get it. But still, when it gets too hot or dry. Personally, I like calling it the Josephus Bowl, but whenever you think it's ready, you can go. We're going to give you about 60 more seconds so you can finish your conversations. It seems like people are wrapping up. So, Dr. Plummer, what we're going to do is we're going to have opportunity for you to ask him questions. We're going to ask you to come to this microphone or to that microphone over there. Uh, if you would just uh, go ahead and move there now. If you know that you have a question, you can go ahead and move to one of those. I'm going to uh, begin with two questions. One, we're going to turn to Matthew 417. Yeah. Uh, and what I need you to do, Dr. Plummer, is I need you to walk through this. Uh, and I need you to help us understand an infinitive, a complementary <laughs> infinitive. And then I actually have a real question. Okay. So if you have your Bible, yeah, yeah, you turn yeah. with Matthew 417. Yeah. This is kind of uh, already laying the foundation of why you should listen to the Daily Dose of Greek, primarily because you get this. Yeah, I have, uh, I have a lot of little memory devices. I try to help Greek students <laughs> to, to learn, know what's going on. I don't know if it will, it will connect to them in the same way if they don't study Greek, but... There's certain words in Greek that are almost like a plane that takes off that will not land until the other part comes. So, uh, and one of those is the, the verb archomai, to begin. So Jesus began, and then you're, just, you're waiting for the plane to land. Like, what did he begin to do, right? You need an infinitive. It's called a complementary infinitive because it completes the idea. So when I do the videos, and I'm alone in my office, so I'm bolder in doing this, right? But I say, it's a verb just asking, just, want, just wishing to be completed, with a complimentary infinitive. I get that from the, uh, the My Fair Lady. I don't know if you know that Welsh father. He's like, I'm wanting to tell you. I'm waiting to tell you. I'm wishing to tell you. Right? So I'm like, look, that's, a, that's some delicious complimentary infinitives there. Yeah. All right. So, Dr. Pullman, that that's helpful. I don't care if they don't understand it. I just okay. enjoy that. I, hey, we, I, I, I enjoy that so much in my, my office that together. they needed that to experience nice. it. Yeah. Uh, somebody looks at what you've taught us tonight, and they say... 
I'm really busy or I just have yeah. no time. Uh, yeah. my, my schedule is slammed or I've just not regularly read the Bible. Yeah. And just the whole project kind of is sure. intimidating to me. And all I've ever been told is observation, interpretation, application. And I do that in about 75 seconds most days. Yeah. Yeah. This seems, it took you 70 minutes to tell me to do that. Yeah. What can I do this week other than just like, okay, I pray, but like, how do I actually get going? There are get, get so going? many things you could do this week. So let's just choose one of them, meditation, right? Most people, if you ask them, what did you read in the Bible today, if they read the Bible, they might have to be like, well, I'm doing this plan. You say, well, what did you read in the plan? I don't know. Let me look and see what it was this chapter of this, right? So one small step is as you're reading that to say, you know, this really seems to be a pivotal verse in this passage. So I'm going to write it down and I'm going to meditate on it. My guess is, let's see, who in here bathes? Does, ever, does everyone in here take a shower or a bath? Oh, what if you were to put up that verse on the shower, like, you know, on the glass or next to the... Is it everyone in here brush your teeth? Okay, yeah. So think about I that. I noticed that many of you didn't raise your hand. Yeah. Like, <laughs> think, think about that. You, you, we're all really busy, but we do have those, we do have those moments in the day that we could fill with more meditation on. So I would say don't, don't try to take everything, but realize, hey, where is this auditing my study of the Scripture? I'm not really meditating on the Scripture. I'm not really soaking in it and letting it percolate into my brain and heart. What can I do for that? Or, or the prayer thing is just, okay, you know, like, I don't know where to begin. Psalm 119, highlight. You say, I'm just going to highlight. One day I'm going to highlight 12 verses that deal with prayer about understanding the Word of God. Then I'm going to make those my own prayer. When I, next time I read the Bible, I'm going to start by reading that, pausing, and, and praying that back to God. So, yeah, I think any one of those, you could, you could take a small piece. And this is not that different from observe, interpret, apply. Really, it's, it's going deeper on some of those. I, did, I should have said at the end, I was reminded. So, you're, you, I, anyone in here Lutheran visiting us? we have any Lutherans? Okay, so Martin Luther has the Oratio prayer. Meditatio, meditation. Someone's wondering, where did the tentatio go, the trial? That's with the, the Bible speaking centers, right? Because as we suffer, as we have difficulties, as we have failings, Luther, Luther says that's when the abstract truth of the Bible becomes experienced and real. When we're suffering, when we're, we're repenting, when we have guilt, when we have sin, that's when we really know the truth of scripture, not just in our mind, but in our lives. I had, I had a hermeneutic student once, we talked about this in class, he came up and goes, okay, I understand how to do the oratio, meditatio, how do I do the tentatio? I was like, you don't have to do, you don't have to worry about that. I was like, I was like God will bring the tentatio to you. Your thing is to respond to the tentatio by running to the word of God and, and nourishing yourself on the truth of Scripture in your suffering and in your difficulty. So, yeah. All right, Steve, we'll go first. Quick to the questions, and then we'll go back and forth. Thanks for bringing it down. Great stuff. Thanks for the humor. Uh, I'm thinking of an author. If you need the name, let me know. Uh, Neo-Orthodox, maybe. Uh, I'm getting to authorial intent. Yeah. So, for example, Old, Old Testament, uh, let's say he has a problem with genocide. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the authors of that time uh, wrote in this style in order to communicate strength or something like that, yeah. but it's not necessarily historical. 
Yeah. And then New Testament, maybe something like Matthew 25, eternal punishment, but hell doesn't exist eternally. And somehow they get there. Yeah. So, okay. okay. So I'll, I'll try, and you're, tell me, your name's Steve? Yes. Yeah, I'll react to your question, but you have, feel free to follow up. So for me, the, the beginning question there, it, I mean, I start with the assumption, uh, the foundational belief that the Bible is true, right? Uh, and so when I approach it, I come submitted to it. So when I, when I read in the Old Testament about God commanding the people to come in and to you know, wipe out the town, I believe that really happened. And I believe I have to understand how that fits with the character of God and who he is. And there actually are many verses in the Old Testament. I won't be able to pull, pull them out for you off the top of you know, just this second, but I can find them if you like. God says, I'm going to give this land to you, but the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Hundreds of years, God's patience with this, these people, that then ultimately he did use his, the pro, you know, his promised people, his chosen people, to bring about judgment for the sin of the land. But it was, um, it was, it was a unique... So to people who would say, oh, that was... Yeah, I, that, th there's two ways to approach the Bible, right? One is to come in and say, I have an idea of what's right and good, and I judge the Bible. Or to come in and say, I bow before the scriptures, and they're the ultimate authority. So I'm, I'm, I'm coming with the second there. Someone who, who is, is unwilling to say this was the revelation of God is coming with this, the, the other view. Does that, feel free to follow up. No, yeah, you thank, thank you. Yeah. William? How would you explain to a non-believer how the Bible can be both inerrant and also a book to be interpreted? How can the Bible be inerrant and... Also a book to be interpreted. Also a book to be interpreted. Okay. Yeah. So when I say interpretation, all we're saying there is to understand the meaning of the author and to communicate it. Right? So we do that with any writing. But I think that what you're, what you're asking is why do people disagree? How do you deal with, if the Bible is inerrant, how do you deal with the fact that people disagree about it? Right, I disagree about the meaning. Is that is that kind of where you're going, or yeah, about kind of. Okay, <laughs> um, I would say, yeah, it's true. People disagree about the meaning of the scripture. Amazingly, people disagree still whether the Earth is round or not. You know, <laughs> there's a flat Earth society. So there, the fact that people disagree about what something is doesn't doesn't uh, impinge upon the truthfulness of of that thing itself, right? It just says more about the diversity of people who are looking at it rather than that. Do cr true Christians disagree about the meaning of Scripture? Absolutely they do. They do disagree about the meaning of Scripture. But I do think there is fundamental, and, and that's because we're flawed and fallible humans, but I do think there is shocking level of agreement among Christians about essentials. So Bible-believing Presbyterians, Bible-believing Baptists, Bible-believing Lutherans, shockingly united on essentials of the meaning of Scripture. Okay, what about baptism? Well, it's true. You know, Presbyterians and Baptists disagree about baptism, and I think they do uh, because we come with our subjective biases that come out in our in study. And, and Paul, even in um, 1 Corinthians, um, let's see, I'm thinking about 1 Corinthians 14, I'll read what he says there. He says, One man considers one day more sacred than another, 
Another man considers every day alike. You might think at this point, he's an apostle, and be like, I'm an apostle, and I'm going to straighten it out for you. Is one day more sacred? Should, should you worship, for example, only on this day of the week? But Paul doesn't say that. At this point, he says, each one should be fully, fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. He who eats meat eats to the Lord. He who, and for he gives thanks. So Paul allows for this category of disagreement, but then he also has categories that are non-negotiable about the identity of Jesus and why he came and things like that. You can, you can follow up again if you'd like to. Yeah, I just very often get into conversations with my father about how I believe that the Bible is inerrant and all these things I believe because of that. And then his response is always, well, that's just your interpretation. You know, you're yeah, not yeah. necessarily right, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I think in that situation, what I might do, if, if, if and I've had lots of conversations like that with different people, is I would, I would rather than trying to argue with, with someone, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to prove to you the Bible's in there and I'm going to go through it. I would just say, I would just try to focus on who Jesus is and the reliability of the testimony to who he is. Um, I do think ultimately only when someone is indwelt by the Spirit um, do they fully submit to the authority of Scripture. But, but I think that having that winsome apologetic conversation, there is... Um, uh, a book by Peter Williams, and it's on the truthfulness of the Gospels. Is it? Um, I can't. Are, why we can trust yeah, why we can. Thank you. Why we can trust the Gospels. I think is is the name of it, and it's it's a paperback book, and it's just really a winsome book by by someone's very reputable scholar. I think he graduated from Cambridge. He's like, hey, this what we have here in the New Testament is a historically reliable account. He's not trying to nail it down to inerrancy. He's just, this is a historically reliable account about who Jesus is and what he taught. And so I think starting with, with that might be a better suggestion. Yeah. Well, we'll come back to, to those, and maybe you yeah. guys can dialogue offline. We'll hear Dr. Plummer for the other questions. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Plummer, for your time. Yeah. So I'm thinking about, like, a small group Bible study where mm. brothers and sisters or sisters and sisters are opening God's Word together. Mm. There's relationship. There's buy-in. There's some background about yeah. genre and proper handling. But particularly points two and three yeah. are going yeah. off the rails. Yeah. How can we, or can you equip us with some thoughtful questions that are winsome yeah. to pull the interpreters back? It's a good question. Yeah. So to, we could imagine we're at a small group study and there's somebody who's never been there before and, and we're sharing and the person says something, let's say they say something that's, it's not, it's not heresy, but it's totally off the wall, right? Not, not what the Bible is teaching at that point at all. You're doing Joseph, you know, this really makes me think about gifts people have given me, you know, and then it makes me think how much they love me. At that point, if I were leading the study, I think I would just smile and be like, that's cool. <laughs> you know, there's a time to just, there's a time to just realize that love, that the, the inerrancy, the authority of the Bible is not being threatened there. It's more just, hey, we need to be patient with people where they are. 
Um, and then there's a way, there is a way to, to bring it. I think there's a way just to winsomely bring it. Oh, I will, I'll give you a little secret here. Although you've got to be careful now. Everybody knows this. What can you say when something's like totally bizarre? You don't even know what to say. Fair enough. It doesn't communicate anything, right? Uh, but it's a really helpful phrase. Uh, um, Mark Seifert used to do that all the time. I got that from him, one of our professor's friends. So, uh, but the, yeah, but then there's the time you say, you know, I hear what you're saying there. And what I have to keep coming back to myself when I'm in this is what did the inspired author of Scripture why did they include this story for us here? Like, what, what were they trying to teach to the, you know, and just sort of ask questions and, and sometimes be willing to let things slide. Maybe a follow-up email. Hey, I've been thinking more about that passage. And for me, I noted this and this and this. And I, I really felt like, or, or maybe it's just uh, sending a paragraph of another person discussing. I felt this felt really nailed. You know, so it can be a long process. You're right. Yeah. Thank you. So I felt like um, all these like different steps are like really important for like personal devotions. What if I'm trying to um, lead, like lead devotions for like multiple people, like on like a little bit of like a larger scale, like with like a class or yeah. with uh, just like yeah. a group of people? Um, how would I be able to like utilize these steps properly yeah. to be able to like craft a, um, a well-made devotion that um, wouldn't? Um, Matthew and East Brandywine Baptist Church. Okay, so I, I think uh, the steps, you know, insofar as they reflect in Scripture, which is always what you should be asking, am I teaching you something that's biblical, right? So you need to be a Berean Christian. Is that, should he, is, is the Bible really teach me to do that? Um, that would affect the way, let's say that a week from now you're leading a Bible study. So what that means is, between now and then, you're, you're praying that God will give you understanding. You're also starting early enough. You're not, you don't have what some people have called Saturday night fever right? <laughs> to get ready for Sunday. You're starting early enough so that you have plenty of time to meditate on the Scripture. So when you're taking the bus, when you're walking to class, whatever you're doing, you've, we all have those times where our brains are just filled with emptiness or passing thoughts where we could be meditating on the text and praying about the text. Um, also, uh, thinking about authorial intent, you're working on it, you're like, is this what this text is about? You have enough time now to discuss it with two or three other mature Christians. You say, well, I don't really have any other mature Christians in this group. You've got hundreds of dead Christians who've written about it, <laughs> right? So, you know, like, the, the you know, we have faithful Christians in their writing if we don't have, but a living community is great where, hey, I'm thinking this week this is what I'm focusing on. Do you think I'm on track to focus on this part? Oh, I didn't notice that. Oh, wow. Okay, like, you know, that we have a community that helps us as we you know, say, oh, I'm thinking about at the end to show how this, this Old Testament text is about Jesus. I'm thinking about making this connection. Do you think, do you think that's legit? Of course, there, there are all kinds of resources now about reading the Old Testament all parts of it pointing to Jesus. And so I think the key is, one, you start early enough that you can pray, that you can meditate, that you can really think carefully about the meaning and how it's about Christ, and that you have other people that will, will journey with you in that. So, yeah. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you.
Hi, Dr. Plummer. I'm Ken, a member here at Christ yeah. Church. Uh, wondering from perspective of someone who's a layman, uh, never studied Greek or Hebrew, um, but Raymond's been crazy enough to give me a couple opportunities to teach uh, church. Yeah. <laughs> um, what, to what extent um, should someone like me rely on going back to the Greek? Yeah. It means I have no, I have like no background. It feels yeah. a bit authentic sometimes for me to say, well, the Greek says this, and I have I've no idea two, what I'm talking about. You've got two instructions yeah. <laughs> for you. One, don't worry about it at all, because we have good English translations. Until you study Greek and Hebrew. And so until you study Greek and Hebrew, don't ever cite Greek and Hebrew. And then after you study Greek and Hebrew, almost never cite Greek and Hebrew. Yeah. Yeah, I tell my students that Greek is like Greek and Hebrew should be like underwear. It should provide support but not be visible. I violated my own rule this morning. One of one of the people in the in the, in the congregation told me I saw your underwear when you were preaching. Meaning I cited Greek explicitly. I was like, you got me. You got me. So we have, you, we have great translations. We have great translations. So you should just, for now, focus on those and don't feel, yeah, don't feel in any way. Just be faithful to the opportunities and the knowledge God's. There are people who have never studied Greek and Hebrew who do amazing teaching, amazing Bible studies. So, yeah. Thank you. I'm grateful you're doing them. Thanks. That's great. Yeah. Hi there, I'm David. I'm a member here as well. Um, so what's your advice when we come to, let's say, a difficult passage of Scripture or, or something, uh, an overall book where we think we've pinned the genre, but then all of a sudden we get thrown a curveball? Like, for example, you're going through Job, which is narrative slash dialogue, and then all of a sudden near the end, this guy named Elihu pops up, and you're like, who's this guy? We don't know anything about him. Uh, yeah. Ask Raymond. That's what you yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you reading the McShane plan? <laughs> I, I jumped a little bit. I, I jumped yeah. to specifically Joe, but yeah. Yeah. Well, two things that I think of with that. Number one, we have, as we mentioned, we have 2,000 years you know, of Christian reflection. So any question you've ever had about the meaning of Scripture or how pieces, some multiple people have written about it, that doesn't mean that always the answer that you first read is convincing. Or even the second or third answer. You might have an issue, like you raised with Job, you know that good scholars disagree about that. You know? And so you might, it might come to a point where you say, um, I don't know. You know. I suspend my judgment. You know, it could be this, it could be this. But I'm not sure. And that's an honest answer. Erasmus, when he disputed with Luther in the bondage of the will... He was often, uh, I don't remember the exact wording, but he was, you know, the Bible is so hard to understand here. The Bible is so hard to understand here. The Bible's... And Luther came back and he goes, wrong. You're fallible. You're weak. The reason, he's like, in the end, yeah, we don't understand the Bible sometimes, but the problem is us. Like, we're, we're, we're weak and limited in our understanding. So I think it's just, um, we don't want to too quickly uh, run to that. Um, but there are, there are some texts that we, you know, I, I could tell you, well, I 70% think this is the answer, but I'm not sure. It might be, might be this. So, yeah, just being honest about that, I think. Yeah. Would you all help me thank Dr. Plummer for his time with us?
We are very thankful that you came to be with us. We'd love to invite you back next month. We'll have Trevin Wax with us. We'll be studying G.K. Chesterton and the enduring relevance of his book, Orthodoxy. Uh, it'll be a wonderful time. So if you uh, look, go, uh, go ahead and look ahead to the end of the month of March, Trevin Wax will be with us. Uh, if you want to grab one of those cards, <clears throat> you should be able to find them on the table to the uh, outside of the tunnel to the right or over at the Connection Center. But otherwise, we're grateful that you come to be with us. I'm going to close us in prayer. Father, we thank you for the privilege to be able to learn tonight and the questions that are being asked and just uh, the, these reminders uh, to us of uh, how we need to begin our approach to Scripture with prayer, uh, asking that you would help us to, to see, that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear the truth and beauty of the gospel as it has been decisively revealed in the person of Christ. Uh, we ask that you would make us more prayerful in our approach to Scripture, uh, and even as Dr. Plummer exhorted us, uh, that we would uh, be less quick to microwave the process, that we would soak in the Word. Uh, help us to carve out time and to be creative uh, in the use of our time, that we might soak in the Word. Father, even now, we pray that you'd prepare us uh, for gathering with the people of God next Sunday in our respective churches. Uh, Lord, we ask that you would help us as we wield the word in a variety of capacities, some of us more formally in teaching and preaching, and Father, some of us more informally in the way that we disciple and share the gospel with others in our lives. And in every context, whether individual or with others, we pray that you would help us to, to see and behold beautiful and wonderful truths from your word. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.